had a, I sold mine about a week after I went through a two-way stop where I did not have to stop and a car blew through the stop sign and missed me by a few feet. And I went, wow, I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. And I was this close to at least my leg being crushed. Right, right. And I was like, I can't, I don't think I can enjoy this anymore. You know, and it's, you want, you wonder like, I mean, like, you know, we'll circle back to writing and all sorts of stuff. But like, I mean, when you put your writer hat on, like you kind of like you think about that stuff and you go, okay, like, listen, like, you know, the event that happened to you, but then it's like a question of like, okay, let's move the camera and go inside that vehicle. Right. Did that person even know what happened? Right. Right. Like, did they just carry on or did they like do that? And they go, okay, I really need to like, right. (laughs) something, You know, like it's, it's yeah. Cause it's, I mean, and, and then, then I think like, well, how many times have I done that? Like, yeah. How many times have I done something that I didn't know I was about to do? You know, I mean, we've all been there when we're changing a lane and we hear a horn honk, you know, we're like, yeah. oh, geez, I didn't see that, you know, and that's, yeah, <laughs> I, I hate, I, I'm fascinated by it, but I also hate thinking about this stuff because right. it's like, we're just so, we're so, so fragile. Like, it's just terrifying how fragile yep. we are. Now it's official. We're talking. There we, go. we were already talking, but we're going to keep talking. Um, Andy, thank you for joining me. Um, I'm really uh, psyched to talk. I I have an extra special like fascination in in entering conversations with people who were in the business when I was in the business. So I I love the perspectives and the experiences because I like the pre digital experience. Yeah. you know, and the post-digital experience. Like, like I really want to get Trish Mulville on the show because I just want to like get like more colorists because of the technological change for colorists has been yeah. like radical, you know, right. because there hasn't been a comic book writer writing scripts on paper by hand in a long time. So like that sort of change really kind of disappeared a long time ago. So um, as an but- anchor, I saw it, um, I lived in Philly for the first kind of five established years of my career Okay, uh, with a guy named Mike Manley lived nearby. Yeah, man. Mike Manley. Yeah. And I would work in his studio a lot and we would make FedEx runs out to the airport. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they closed at nine 30, maybe FedEx at the airport. So we're heavenly, huh? And then somewhere in the late nineties, we started scanning things at home and sending them digitally. And that was a huge change in my lifestyle. Yep. That was my, so that was my, like, I, I've, I've told the story before, but like it was, um, I moved to Atlanta in the late nineties. Dave Johnson and I were studio partners and he was like, Dave, Dave is just the biggest character. And he's just like, he, he's like, he's just like Superman with a goatee. And <laughs> he's just like, well, hey man, you know, like everything is well, hey man, you have to start off at any Dave Johnson recreation with hey, well, hey man. And he was like, oh, he's like, well, he's like, the great thing is that you can go down to the heart, you know, the airport and drop off your stuff like at 9 30 or 10 o'clock, you know, because yeah. I was like, oh my God. I lived in Manhattan, so we didn't really have that luxury. Like they stayed open as late as stayed open, but like no one's going to hustle out to JFK to <laughs> drop right, right. a package. Um, we, even in Philly, we had a, a super, emergency service 
that I used for my to on the last few pages of my first job for DC and Action Comics fill-in. Uh, you could take stuff to the train station in Philly in the morning, and they would get it to the DC offices by afternoon. Oh my gosh! Take it up on the train. Yeah. Well, okay. I actually served as art courier for Howard Porter during. Oh wow! Sandy, Sandy, no, this is not official. But San Diego Comic Con, Howard was finishing up pages for. He might have been on Justice League at the time. Yeah. I can't remember what it was, but. He was like, we were we were sharing rooms, i.e. Howard was letting me crash in his room. And he was like, he was like hey, do you think you could like, because I lived five blocks away from the DC offices. So he's like, hey, do you think you could drop these off in the office tomorrow? I was like, yeah, sure. So I got, you know, I'd, so I flew back with his artwork in a box um, in the overhead con, you know, container and brought it in and handed it awesome. off. Here you go. I know Howard. I like Howard a lot. Howard's, Howard's amazing. Yeah, he's amazing and really one of the funniest people too. Yeah, just his dry wit is unparalleled. We did one issue of Lobo together, and we both had a great time, and swore it would happen again, and then we never. And it never did. Him. Yeah, yeah, he's he, he's he's the best, one of the nicest people that I've ever met in the business, and uh, we met at the Ramapo High School comic book club oh, wow. convention. <laughs> it was like the 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 and we we were like and it was always and it was like the gold standard of conventions for us because they gave us free pizza oh classy yeah, yeah. i mean how can you beat that <laughs> so cheer you know shout out to those guys um so philly okay so did you grow up but you said you grew up around kansas. yeah i'm a kansas city kid yeah. uh, i met my wife going to ku in lawrence kansas mm -hmm. and then i felt like i was close to breaking in in 1991 back then it was still helpful to be seen in the offices yeah um because guys would drift in once a week, and if the guy's standing there, you're probably going to hire him instead of picking up the phone to call the, you know, yeah. That was me, dude. I, I mean, and, I, was, uh, I, I went to I went to school visual arts, so oh yeah, yeah. So um, Gene Colon was my teacher, and Gene's like, he's like, you just just go up to the offices; they'll just give you work. And we're like, right. Gene, it's not 1965; like it doesn't work like that anymore. Right. And then he would have editors and assistant editors come in to talk to us, and so I just got the card of one of the assistant editors and he was like, yeah, sure. Give me a call. Gave him a call. Went on up there. And for the last year and a half of school, I just kept hustling and doing that. Mm -hmm. That was what happens. Yeah. yeah. So well, you, then my you, wife was ready to get her a PhD and she applied to schools around New York okay. and got accepted at Penn. Um, so we moved to Philadelphia and I had really gotten lucky. I'd sat next to Mike Manley at a show in Chicago. Okay enough that I called him and said, we're coming. And so he helped us find the right neighborhood for us. Like we would wow. have been a little shell shocked living down in the city by Penn. Sure. Um, so he helped us, he steered us toward a town called Lansdowne, okay. kind of yeah. inner suburbs, you know, on the train route. And then, so that was helpful being able to just catch a train to New York, but it was also super helpful being around guys, Mike and uh, other guys who were just meeting deadlines every week because mm -hmm. I was slow and I was being too precious about this stuff. It was good to see guys who just knocked it out every day. I got a lot faster yeah. and better in that first six months there than I had the couple of years before. Probably. Yeah. It, it's funny. Cause like, I mean, like, you know, like they say like you've learned the most like on that first year of your job doing the job, but yeah. I really think like in a, in a business like this, getting to observe real pros do the thing 
is a ne- is the next level thing because I think that preciousness is something we all like are cursed with for yeah. you know unless and you've got to get it like something has to kind of winnow it out of you in one way or the other um you know usually it's that phone call of like hey you know we had 20 days to do this but we have 10 you know and right. Then like, <gasps> right like no chance and i i came to appreciate that i the the pages i labored over mm-hmm. were probably not as good as the ones where i was flying what do you think um, I mean, what, what do you like and what do you think that is like what do you think is the just the thing that changes in your not you specifically but a person's mind you think it is there is definitely a groove factor um you know if you spend a week away from the drawing board you can feel how chunky everything is when you go back yeah and when you get into a zone you got some nice like npr or something on in the background and you're just swapping out pages because one of them is wet you know so you're throwing one and i don't know you just get into a space where the lines make sense and it's all your brain is engaged in it's just tiny decision at a time yeah and I, now not everybody probably feels that way. I, I like work that is lively and spontaneous and, and looks like the pen was moving, you know, mm-hmm. I don't like, I, for me, art that where you can see the guy doing this, mm-hmm. that doesn't really appeal to me. So right. I, I like my stuff better when it's just looks like I'm, there's a, I call it a casual perfection. It, like it's that. an informed, educated line, but it doesn't look like you thought too hard about it. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it, man, like, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a young buck, so I don't have that, like, I'm not, like, char- chasing after anything in the, in the visual art sense of work anymore, but I think about, like, that, and this has been, like, something that keeps circling in, like, the drain of my brain, is that, like, you know, when you say things like that, I go, yeah, I mean, to me, it was all about, like, this, this precision, like, how precise could I make something, and, mm-hmm. and then all I ever felt was, unhappy with the results and then i'll look at people who i know they put the hours and i know they put the time in like like you know john paul like john paul put endless hours you know at the drawing table at the sketchbook or whatever but his his effort of making it not look precise but it's still all right there in a very organic form yeah you're like oh that's so nice there are guys i marvel at um yeah, I just sent a Twitter post today to Jerry Ordway because it's his birthday. Hey, happy birthday, Jerry Ordway. If, if you look at Jerry's stuff reproduced, it looks very precise. Mm-hmm. But if you study the originals, he's flying around the page and everything is very organic. Yeah. There's a there's a trickery in the kind of perfection of his line that's not dead. It just looks very neat and precise without yeah. being flat. Like, uh, um, let's just, uh, so I, this is bad form probably, but like John Beatty's work, I, John yeah. is a terrific craftsman, Yeah. but I don't gravitate towards his work as much because it looks a little too precise to me. Right. It's like he's labored over the lines. Um, and he, that just doesn't work. That doesn't work for me as much. Yeah. And, and John, and John is, you know, one of those inkers that, you know, for me, I was like, Oh man, that guy, that guy's amazing. Cause he's yeah. so sort of so clean. And so like, everything is delineated and it's super understandable. And I think, you know, I think his working with Michael early on was probably very like informative of mm. where, where he ended, you know, going with his, with his line work. Um, 
And you know, and I think, but the thing is that it's so it's so interesting because that marriage between the inker and the penciler is not just you do this for this other person. Like it's so it's 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 more like you know Fred and Ginger. You know, like yeah. it, it is very much a dance partnership that when it works, it's mind blowing. Yeah. You know, and then it clearly doesn't work all the time and that's okay. You know, it's not a, it's not a, not a slight against either one of the people because it just right. doesn't happen. Yeah. Phil and I, Phil Hester and I got very lucky. We met, we were at the similar stage of development, like yeah. both about ready to get work. We also had a general aesthetic that we shared. Yeah. We had the same kind of heroes, you know, Kirby and Toth and, I, I'm a little more of a Neil Adams guy than he. I would probably slide on the Neil Adams scale, and he would slide more on the Toth scale. But we like stuff that's bold and graphic and doesn't look too labored over. We also just, and this is really lucky, we kind of move our hands the same way. We 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 kind of snap with the wrist. You know, we don't, yeah. we're not these kind of guys. Yeah, we kind of and and so we just were natural together. And when he put down certain marks, I could just see what he had in mind. And other guys who are great inkers would look at the same marks and say, oh, well, he must want a crosshatching. And he doesn't. <laughs> he wants maybe some rendering, but more of a, a parallel line kind of fadeaway. He, he doesn't want this uh, little Brian Bolland kind of brushy yeah. you know, thing like that. So right. not everybody gets him. And I was just really lucky that we got each other. And um, it took a while for us to get work together at DC. Like we were working together on small press stuff before mm -hmm. and independently at DC. And then finally, thank God for Kevin Smith. He had the clout to get us together on Green Arrow and that was it. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Like it's so interesting how sort of, for, I don't know, like there's a lot of foundational stuff happening with Green Arrow, you know, in the sort of like 95 on. Mm -hmm. In, in a, for the people who kind of like were brought up on that book um, artistically, and it's kind of in, interesting. And I don't know whether it's because it's not one of the big name books for DC where they could kind of like, hey, let's try something. But like, right. because what Neil Adams did in the 70s, you know, on that on that co-joined title, yeah. it, it, it sort of like was always the drama book. Does it make sense? Like it always yeah. felt like the book where you could get away with <clears throat> good drama in a green yeah in a green arrow book and that's part of why denny and neil were able to do what they did because it wasn't a flagship title they're like okay same with x-men i think neil asked marvel like what book is struggling give me that one because i want i want to have freedom to try some shit right right yeah i was i was talking with um so i was talking to someone uh, I, I there's someone who i think is a phenomenal artist who does great work but this person's work when they do like drawings for themselves are unbelievable. Like, you know, the drawings that they put up, you know, you know, Adam Hughes is like, Oh my God, this is incredible. You know? Yeah. So like when Adam is giving you the, you know, the, the, the thumbs up, you know, and I was talking saying like, I want to see a whole comic book like this. And right. they were like, well, I, I, I'm really afraid of changing what I look like to the expected expectations of what I look like for my, publishers like he's a you know they're afraid that oh i'm gonna lose this you lose a job and and i was talking with a buddy of mine yesterday saying like but like what if what if like bill sinkevich felt that way you know when he's doing yeah. moonlight like 
if he never stopped doing that beautiful version of Neil Adams artwork, what would we, you know, uh, think of all we'd miss? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I just, you know, so, I mean, we want to kind of keep exploring and pushing right. yeah. whether, whether it is, but, but let's, let's hop, but before we get too far ahead, I want to hop back. So you sat next to Mike at a convention, but you weren't really in the racket yet. So what was the, like, what were you doing? Were you doing small press stuff? Were you like, Hey, I'm just going to get it. Cause listen, you should just get a table back in 1990, yeah, yeah. you know, and nobody even charged you to sit there. Right. Like you would just sit there and have a sketchbook, you know, at How that did- time in my career, some shows would ask me for a hundred bucks or 50 bucks or whatever for a table. Others would mm-hmm. say, Oh, you can go in artist alley. Cause I had some small press, um, Inked a couple of things for Malibu, things like that, you know. So yeah. I, I did have a few credits, uh, but no, really, no mainstream work, nothing that was really paying much. And so I would set up at these shows and I'd sell uh, some comics that I had worked on. And then I would sell drawings, you know, I'd sit at home and do pre drawn drawings or I'd have yeah. some friends, maybe. Yeah, and I just sat next to Mike and we got along well. And he was certainly more established than I, but still not. Um, not a star of any stretch. He, by the time I moved to Philly, he was just starting Darkhawk, okay. which was a cool, like he got to do number one of that book. And that yeah. was kind of a cool book. He was also inking Dennis Cowan on Deathlock. So oh, wow. Okay. Those pages were coming in. So yeah, I saw a lot of amazing stuff go through that studio. Oh, I'll bet. Really helpful. Yeah. Also, Mike had shared a studio with Al Williamson. Oh, jeez. Okay. He and Brett Blevins had worked in Al's studio. And Al is one of the original art collectors in this art form. Yeah. Um, he's got Prince Valiant's The Bridge, like, used to hang above his couch in the living room. Oh, my God. Because he wanted that stuff when nobody else did. Anyway, he had a photocopier back in the day. That was when you made it as an artist, when you had a photocopier. <laughs> totally. And uh, he had amazing stuff. So Mike had stacks of copies. Okay. And I would just sit and on the floor of Mike's studio, just flipping through um, Rip Kirby dailies and all these, all this stuff, just soaking it in, just stuff I'd never been exposed to on that level, being able right. to really see the, the handiwork. It's really amazing. Wow. Yeah. No, you're, you're right about the, the copy machine. My business yeah. model was always live close enough to Marvel in DC that I could right. just use their copy machines. Yeah. It's- at the time they didn't care i mean, I'm sure somebody cared but they didn't seem to say anything and um, then mike had one too so um, wow. because it was good to i mean you're putting stuff in a fedex box it's a little nerve-wracking it, it we always made copies before we yeah. sent jobs off just in case yeah but yeah mike would let me take make copies of all the stuff he had in his collection he had this he had a couple horses of vino pages pages of just blow my mind and no photocopier can do Jorge justice. I own right. one uh, winter world page and okay. that guy, he attacked the page like a painter, like exacto knife scraping and white out painting over and then back over. And I'm just in the, on the page I own, he actually cut out a panel and taped a new one in. <laughs> <laughs> so super organic. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's amazing. And it's amazing how that, how so much of that just doesn't even register when you're looking at the actual printed comic yeah you know we it's not that we aren't looking at this stuff with you know drool pouring out of our mouths you know as young artists but 
but so much of that detail does disappear. So much of yeah. it doesn't really, the shape there doesn't register as the same shape when it's really tiny. Um, and those guys worked for reproduction, I think more than current artists do. Like, yeah. Dick Giordano, when he inked a job, he was working for the reproduction capabilities at the time. Yeah. He, his chunky way of doing hair came out of, he wanted it to show up on crappy newsprint. So it was instantly readable. No, and it's, it's, I mean, and those guys, I mean, they were really were masters of the graphic arts, you know, because they really had, because the limitations were so, they're numeral, you know, the, yeah. the, 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 the printing wasn't great. The paper wasn't great. The coloring wasn't great. Not saying the colorists weren't great, but the right. coloring. So all these things really were working against everyone in the whole, you know, in the whole piece. And, you know, what we ended up with is amazing for, yeah. for that, for that. I mean, and then, you know, then the, the quality of everything improves through like the mid eighties and into the nineties. And then now it's just, you know, magic comparatively. Yeah. Um, now, did you, I mean, was the intention for you to say like, Hey, I'm going to be an inker. Like, were you always like focus on that? Yeah. Because I didn't really draw until I was in high school. Um, I drifted away from, I, you know, I drew as a little kid. I had some comics as a little kid, but I drifted away from both. Okay. Rediscovered comics in junior high. At, at a crucial time, my parents were splitting up and I, I found some comics at 7-Eleven. And so at a time when the world was kind of chaotic and out of my control, for a couple bucks, I could get these things that were mine and I could go enjoy them in my, and it became my escape. It was really helpful. Wow. And then I didn't take an art class till I was a senior in high school. And I went to college and I was doing art and English and not sure what I was going to do. And I wasn't really into college. I didn't know why I was there. And at some point I said, this is dumb. I'm wasting people's time and money. I think I'm going to try to get into comics. And at that point I knew I was way behind the curve on becoming a penciler. Okay. But my stuff had, I always was a decent finisher. My stuff always had a kind of a professional look to it. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, I think I'll focus on inking. It seems like my fastest path into the business. Yeah. And it turned out to be, you know, I did okay. I, when I quit college, I, I was probably 22, 21, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'll give myself time 30 to make a living at this. And then oh, okay. I don't, that's not too old. I'll go back to school or whatever. And I beat that by several years. So I never had to decide if I was real, <laughs> if I meant it or not. Right. What, so what, what did you like? Okay. These are the interesting. Let me just go back. What was the, do you remember what the comic books were that sort of drew you back in? Yeah. Uh, there's one in particular, Phil and I share this is we found out much later. Iron Man number 118 is a John Byrne fill in issue. Okay. And the cover has Iron Man falling out of the helicarrier yep. with a briefcase with his armor in it. And he's yep, 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 yep. Yeah. Yeah. It also happens to be the first appearance of Rhodey. Oh. So it's kind of a key issue for the show. Sure. Um, but that comic meant a lot to me. I saw that cover. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I love the comic. And then at that time, detective -ish, uh, detective comics were big issues. Maybe a little more expensive, 60 cents. Uh, I don't know what they were. Yeah, no, no. I remember they had like the they big, big fat. They, yeah, the, the fat and they had that red circle with the pipe uh -huh. there. And like and Don Newton was doing the leads on those. And I love that stuff. Yeah. They, and I, I love that you got like four stories. So those books are really important. 
Detective did that. Batman Family at the time, like there were those those kind of thick books which you could. And the yeah. Flash, I remember the Flash did that a little bit earlier. Um, but the comic that never left my heart was a comic I owned. I know because of the publishing date, I owned it in like when I was nine years old. Okay, and it's the only comic for my first time loving comics that survived to my second time when I was in junior high because it was just a cool. I knew it was cool, and it's an issue of Detective Comics again, that has chapter six of Goodwin and Simonson's Manhunter. Wow. Okay. And it's got the Alex Toth Batman biplane job in the front. Whoa. Okay. So that's a, that's a really great comic. And again, there's like eight stories in it. Between those two are a bunch of Archie Goodwin chosen villains. Mm-hmm. Like there's a Kirby Newsboy Legion and there's a Shelley Maldoff Batman story and some others. It's just great. Just yeah. great. I love that comic. And it, both those comics in recent years, I went out and got kind of shiny high grade copies just to, cause I still have my old beaters, you know? Yeah. 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 I was like, God, I'd like to have a clean one too, just to have it. Some kind yeah. of nerd collector impulse. Well, I don't, I don't know if it's a nerd collector impulse. I think it just might be like, you know, you know, the other one, but you, you love it. Like, why wouldn't you want to have a nice version? Part of it is regaining that um, thrill of when I bought it and it was shiny and new, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, did you get, did you go get like a Slurpee when you bought, when you bought the new one? (laughs) I'm sure if I had enough money. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. Like I did. So I grew up in a very, I grew up in a relatively small town in New England. So we didn't have a 7-Eleven and uh, there were only a couple of, stores that may have had comic books and i really don't remember too many of them but my father lived in a a sort of more cosmopolitan town in new england that had a Mm 7-eleven happened to be the same town that john byrne lived in and yeah so which i would ride around on my bicycle thinking i was gonna be able to find john byrne like that was how dumb i was but um but I would go to the 7-Eleven to get comics on the weekend. And that was like a really big, exciting thing because this is pre-comic book shops. Yeah. And it's like a lottery. You don't know what you might find. <laughs> no way, man. Anybody who like said, like, I bought this on the stand every month, it was they're, they're a liar. <laughs> right. Because there was nothing there every month. It was right. just random. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that like, it's funny you say burn. Like, I think for me, there was a... Uh, was it a two in one or something that, but it was basically Spider-Man, um, the Hulk and like would God, like it was basically, oh, maybe. he did a lot of Marvel, t- uh, what's it? Marvel team up issues. Up. It was yeah. team. Up. Yeah. And I remember getting that as a kid and I, and I remember like, I'm like, this guy's different. Like I remember yeah. looking at the burn artwork then going, there's something about this. I really dig. I think he did space 1999 and I had uh-huh. one yeah. Charlton. Yeah. That was good stuff. Um, okay, so you, so you, 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 you go to, you're doing the art thing. You say, "Hey, I'm going to go off, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make it as a comic book inker." Yeah. Um, inking terrified me. Like I was very comfortable with a pencil. Inking terrified me. And I mean, it was, it, it took, it took four years of art school of to be less terrified and only yeah. moderately freaked out about it. Um, so how did you like? How did you go about it? Like, where, where were you getting samples? Where were you like? Yeah, that was tough. Um, I became friendly with Pat Bestian, who was Dick Giordano's assistant. Okay. Dick was always nice to me. Barely knew who I was, but he would always look at my... But I I came up at a golden time where you could still go to these conventions 
did you ever go to Chicago when it was by the airport at the Rosemont? I, I did not. I, I regret not going. Yeah. Amazing. They would have a portfolio room over by the pool. There was this big kind of conference room and they'd have tables lining the walls and you could walk in almost any time of day and there'd be a different collection of artists and editors just sitting there. No appointment, no winning a lottery to you know, <laughs> yeah. just walk up and, Hey, do you have, and, and so Dick would say, yeah, this is pretty good. You need to do ABC. Jerry Ordway, who I mentioned earlier, was very kind to me, would hand me like, oh, yeah, you're getting pretty good. Here, here's this marker I'm using. Try this one. You know, he was so oh, wow. wow. Joe Rubenstein was very nice to me. A little ball busting, but still nice. You he know. still is. He Joe still is a piece of work, yeah. He's exactly um, that way still. Yeah. So I would just meet people like that whenever I could and try to get pencils whenever I could. You know, that was the hard part of being in that time. These days, if you want to do inking samples, there's like 4,000 pages online. You can get no sure. problem. And, and you can print them out on blue line on your Canon home printer and you're good to go. Right. Back then it was vellum and you had to get photocopies from Pat Bastian or somebody like yep. that. But yeah, just doing samples wherever I could, trying to hook up with other artists who were similar readiness yeah, um, and doing pinups with them. And just going to cons and Phil and I both were very good at the portfolio review process. And I try to tell this to young people. It's, it's really important. We were, we were fairly put together. Our portfolio had five of our best pages in it. We didn't have 24 year old drawings in there. You know, right. We were never defensive. Yep. We took notes. We were grateful, you know, just, we were good at that part of it. So portfolio reviews were always helpful to me and always got me a little closer to where by the, by the time I went to DC, I knew Mike Carlin well enough to say, can I come by? Oh yeah, yeah. no problem. So it, just networking and whatever I could, wherever I had the chance. Well, I think, I mean, that, that the bit about just being a human is super yeah. important. Like I, I, it's like, you know, eye contact, make eye contact. Yeah. Listen, you know, and and, and, and that the defensive thing is a big one because I get it. It's a scary moment and you don't want it to be a bad moment. But, um, you know, I, I've had people show me blank pages because they like they had like their whole portfolio filled out, you know, with a full page and then like a pencil page and then a half pencil page and then a layout and then blank paper like telling me what's going to be on there. And, you know, the, the hands kind of come up. I put the hands on the thing and I'm like, okay, listen, <laughs> you know, and it was just one of those moments. Okay. We're going to have to have a little talk here about like what we're actually talking, you know, like, yeah. I, I, you know, so. Um, I think it was obvious to anybody I showed my stuff to that I wasn't a hobbyist that I meant to do this. Yeah. And whether I was great or not, you know, they, but they knew I was serious about it. What do you think you're putting on the page that makes somebody see that? Because that's an interesting, that's an interesting thought about if you're showing your artwork, your pages, whether it's pencils or inks or, or colors, like what are you putting on the page? Do you think that makes people go like, this isn't someone who's spent four weeks making this one thing, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. One is I had samples of the thing I wanted to do. <laughs> I wasn't saying I want to do, Pin up, or I want to do comics, but all I have is pinups and sketches. Right. That that that, that happens a lot. Mm -hmm. Two, I I was age appropriate to the level of skill. Like they 
I looked like I was in my early twenties and they could tell I was pretty good. Yeah. Maybe not quite, you know, yep. it, it, it's sad. It's, it sounds mean, but if somebody shows your work and they're, Oh, they're okay. And they're 36. You're like, mm. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's that their reality is about progressions. You know? Sure. Right. Um, and I just, like I said, I was lucky. I always had a decent eye. And at some point, you have to fight against it. I think Picasso has a line about taste is the enemy of art. Yeah. Um, I had a decent sense of taste about what looked professional. So my stuff always looked pretty good. Yeah. Um, even if I didn't know what I was doing yet, if I didn't know how to differentiate planes or if I didn't know how to contribute to the storytelling or if my textures weren't as solid as they needed to be. Uh, it had a sheen to it that people go, okay, I can see that looks nice enough. Yeah. Um, at least I knew, you know, I, I knew, again, I was serious about it. So I found out what tools guys used. I didn't come in with stuff inked with crappy 1990 markers. Right. Yeah. I got the pen point that Dick Giordano used. I got the sable brush that he used, things like that. And I knew how to print I started buying comic book original art when I was probably in high school. Okay. So I had pages. I knew how big they were. I knew what they looked like. I knew what panel borders were, you know, just simple things. That's um, huge. It's, it's a, it, there's a ton of forensic information you can draw from, yeah. from a, a completed piece. Like yeah. it, it's, it's, I mean, as a, you know, as an artist, I look at things and I always forensically tear them apart not in a negative fashion. I'm just like, how did this happen? How did this person make this? What was the what process? Because you can see it there. You can figure out what the step one, two, three were. And that I think that's a fantastic thing because I don't think people, yeah, I mean, you can learn a lot by looking at a digital image, but I would definitely, you know, support you. Like, go look at original artwork, see how it's done because, okay, yes, most artwork, I don't know most, but a lot of artwork is being done in the digital digital space at the yeah. moment. But it doesn't make the the process different. You know, you're still doing the same things. And I think if you can look on an actual piece of board and see, like, oh, this is how this is done. This is how it's done. Oh, okay. And you can always interpolate that and turn it back into a digital, yeah. you know, mindset. Um, it's, I also, I, I did the thing you're not supposed to do, I guess. I jumped without a net. I said, I'm not going to college anymore. I'm going right. to, I'm going to drop a pizza. I'm going to try to do comics. And I didn't really have a plan B. And so I always tell people, I think I was more stubborn than I was talented. Okay. I just, I, I worked hard at it. Like when I, let's say I go to a con and I get for 30 bucks, I buy a Dick Giordano inking Dan Jurgens page. Yeah, I would go home and put it on my light box so I could see what was pen and what was brush, mm -hmm. and study how the lines were made. You know, yeah. that all, I wanted all that information I could get. It, it's no, it's. I mean, it's interesting. Like I have, I have a friend of mine who's a phenomenal um, poster artist, and early on, like at the first time I ever hung out with them, and I was saying, and we were just talking about like, you know, how you do artwork, and I said like, well, do you? Because I looked at his work as, do you like draw everything out like with a pen first and then go over it with a brush to kind of just flare things out? And, you know, because he has a lot of work in his stuff. He's like, 
no, I never thought about that. I'm like, well, I'm like, if you want to save yourself hours, like yeah. you can really cut down on a lot of time by like, you know, just, just getting something in there and then, you know, building it up. And, uh, but yeah, it's a really interesting way to put it because, um, that's the way a lot of those early artists, if you look at early, like Simon and Kirby jobs, mm-hmm. it's obvious that that's what they did. They went through and inked a framework. Yeah. And then Joe Simon most likely would go through with his brush and do that patented kind of Leyendecker striping. Yeah, yeah. But he, they, they viewed it that way. They create almost like a coloring book look, and then they'd flesh it out. And at that point, the pencils are almost irrelevant. They're just going in and and laying in blacks and making it readable. Because I mean, I mean, you know, it's it's a terrible thing to say, but I mean, while we're make while beautiful artwork is made in the process of making a comic book, it's still a production thing and you you have to figure out how you can make that process streamlined and work for you rather than like i'm just going to start here and start inking and keep changing tools as i work my way through the 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 panel like it you'll never finish like you have to like okay i'm gonna block i'm gonna wait till blocking all the blacks in at the end i'm gonna you know you have to figure out you know you get your assistant to do that um it is a commercial art job, though. Yeah, yeah, and it's it, it's so. I mean, I think that's like where you talk about being precious. You know, it's a matter of like how do we kind of like with anything. And I'm not talking inking. I'm talking with anything. How do you like remove that sense of preciousness, but still maintain that magic? Yeah. the The best advice I give to any young person in a show, whether they want to be an artist or a writer or whatever. And I stole part of this from um, Ira Glass. Is that his name? The, yeah. The NPR this guy. American Hour? Something like that? Uh, what did you say? Is he on This American Hour or something like yeah, that? Yeah. Uh, this American Life. Yeah. Life. There you go. He has a great talk about this that everybody should look up. But basically, his, his thesis is if you want, if you're passionate enough to want to do a thing for a living, Almost by definition, you know the thing very well, and you have developed tastes about what makes good um, examples of it good and other examples not so good. Also, by definition, when you start doing it, you cannot possibly live up to your own standard. So it's almost impossible to push through that phase where you know you are not on the good side of the equation and keep making it until you get there. Yeah. But there's no... There's no answer except repetition. So I just, uh, I've condensed all that advice down to two things. Perfection is a lie. Right. Even for me, who's been doing this 35 years, perfect doesn't happen. Yep. I make this one as good as I can. And then I try to make the next one better. And that's all you can, that's all you can do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, Joe, like Joe Kubert was the king of that. Yeah. Like that guy just never looked back. He just did his, his level best on the thing he was doing and then moved to the next one, you know, and must've had just enough consciousness of what he was doing to see where he could improve and then yeah. keep going and keep going rather than looking back and like sort of taking too much time. Um, did anybody ever have more balls when it came to inking than Joe Kubert? Like, he had it when he was like 18. He was thinking like that. It's crazy. No, it's, it, I mean, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, I, he, yes. I think he is like the king in that, in that sense. Um, Gil Kane, maybe. Yeah. You know? 
you know, like these people who have this really like amazing sort of eye for like line, which yeah. most people don't even come close to. Um, who were the inkers that kind of blew you away? I'm, I'm, well, I mentioned Giordano like a dozen times. Yeah. He, he was my hero. He was the guy I wanted to be. He was bold and graphic. And everybody he inked still looked like them, but they also had a certain Giordano kind of sheen to them. Yeah. Like he could ink um, Don Heck, Neil Adams. Um, oh, I forget. I'm blanking on Sikowski that he inked on Wonder Woman. Okay. And they all looked great, but they didn't all look like Dick Giordano. They still <laughs> looked like the guy. Yeah, sure. Um, so he was the guy. Um, when I discovered Ordway, he was a big influence. Um, not necessarily just, well, Klaus is probably the other one I should mention. Yeah. Because Klaus, I was super into Frank Miller's work at that time. Yeah. And Klaus, again, so ballsy. Just, like, totally. No line ever looks labored. It just looks like he's just putting it down. It, I it's, love that. So I, I assisted Klaus briefly. Nice. Um, and that was like totally nuts. The problem is I was the worst assistant in the world with Klaus because all I wanted to do was talk about the Beatles. So like, he did <laughs> Because he's like the second he's like, oh, I'm a huge fan of the Beatles. I'm like, I don't want to talk about comic books. I want to talk about this. So, right. um, but yeah, I mean, like getting to go over his artwork. It was on the uh, Terminator Two movie adaptation, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it was so it was just so cool to see that that like up close how he does it. Because I mean, once again, he's inking for reproduction. Yeah, and it's so it's such a beautiful thing. And he got that. He took it from Dick and amplified it. The idea yep. of the boldest line next to the finest line mm -hmm. that just makes it pop. It's so great. Yeah, it's. I think it's. I mean, I think that's definitely a evolution from. I think Toth. Like I think that Toth world of that black and white yeah. um, approach. That it's not Kirby. It's Toth for sure. Like that yeah. kind of that kind of evolution. I tell people I see a lot of being artists and, and they don't have a lot of line weight variants. Yeah. And to me, that's what makes it pop is just, and, and Dick kind of adhered to that school of a light source. Like for me, I have this light source over here. Mm -hmm. And so on the light side, the line is finer. The contour line even is finer. Yeah. And everything on this dark side is heavier and just, it gives stuff some weight and you don't even absorb all that as a reader. It just looks weightier and more real somehow. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I think, you know, talking about Klaus and when he was working on, on Frank, Frank's work, I mean, I think that really was where, like, I think maybe for Frank got to see more and more of that. So when Frank went in, would do Ronin, like he would, it got even more sort of thin line yeah, black, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, that's really, it's really cool stuff. Um, yeah. It's, it, it's interesting, you know, and I think, it what's really curious to me is that your eye was focused on the embellishment of the artwork yeah. because I don't know how I mean listen yeah sure I knew who Terry Austin was I knew who you know I knew who Joe Rubenstein was I knew who these people were because their name was in the credits but like I didn't I, I don't think I I think maybe Bob Layton might have been the first inker I was like hey this looks different than everybody else's inking because it was right. all shiny you know like right. the guy could like make everything turn into chrome but uh, it was like one of those things where, like, I think it's our eye, you know, writers read comic books and are focused on the story. You know, pencilers read comic books and are focused on 
the visual storytelling or the or the the the, the figure work. You know, I mean, these all these little elements that we really kind of soak in um, subconsciously, you know, and then somehow like our conscious effort says, "Hey, I want to do this. How do what do I want to do?" Um, so I latched onto that early in my development. I remember, I don't think it was comic journal, but some magazine like that took yeah. a Hulk drawing and had like five different guys ink it and they printed the results. It's yep. Palmer and Giordano and, yep. and Oh my God, I, I couldn't get enough of that kind of stuff. I just wanted to see how guys approaches made it different. I was, I was sitting with, um, with, uh, Carl story, Dexter vines and Mark Morales at heroes con and, uh, all longtime friends of mine. And, I'm like, I should get you guys on the show like at the same time, but like have you all ink the same thing yeah. in advance and like we can take a look at it and see how you all see things differently. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, and those guys are crazy precise inkers. Like they're just so yeah. you know, I don't like never a cup of coffee in their life, apparently. Right. Uh, <laughs> I look at guys like that. Um here's a great example. Do you remember the the inker Jesse Delperdang? Yeah, sure. He yeah. inked Leonardi. He maybe I guess you can't never say he's Leonardi's best inker because Al Williamson also inked Leonardi. Mm -hmm. um, so I inked Rick quite a bit uh, several years ago. We did a Batman Beyond run together and some other things. And I would look at Jesse's stuff. I met Jesse and I have a couple pages. And I go, this stuff is mind-blowing. And I couldn't, I would never. I just, I'm not going to spend two days doing this kind of rendering. I, I and it reads great, but at the end of the day, I, I'll I'll lose my mind. I have to have the, I have to be bold and move on because my brain just starts to short circuit. I go, sure. I can't, I can't yeah. do it. And Rick, some guys are wired that way, and it works for them. Yeah, and Rick's a challenge. I think. I mean, like, I think he's. I mean, he's such a unique artist. Yeah. You know, it, like, there's nobody who draws like him. And super lively. He also his pencils are not nailed down. Oh, they're, really? Okay. They're kind of loosey, you know, they give you room to play, uh, which is why it's so interesting. Like Dan Green over him doesn't look anything like me over him. Right. Because um, he, he's from that old school. He wants to lay down the framework and then give you some space. That's what I should have done. I should have been much more of a framework layer than, than, yeah. than Red There's Red been a shift in the generations, you know. Um, yeah. In the 60s, guys didn't think about tight pencils. They, yeah. they knew they were going to get an embellisher. Um, and then over time, it became, well, I need to be super tight because I don't know who's going to ink it. And I need everything defined and so uh -huh. on. Yeah. And that's, dude, that's just fear talking, you know, because yeah. like, I mean, often like, and I'm sure you've seen it, you've seen penciler friends of yours, but you've seen like their, their roughs or their breakdowns of the page. And they're like, you're like, that's good to go. Like you're yeah. good to go. Like, but like, they're like, no, 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 no. I got to get all this other stuff in there. Right. And then it's like, and then we, we go in and we just kill it yeah and at some point i mean we work against our own interests because um you know it's hard to make a living in comics it's really hard if you decide that you're gonna have you're the guy who's gonna make the most lines like <laughs> sure. you're kind of, oh you, <laughs> the economics start to work against you at some point no it's it's so funny you almost think like there were there, like every artist should have like take an economics class okay well here right. it is if you if you plan to draw four thousand lines in one day how much of that day does it take and how much money are you getting per line right. like, well, wait a minute <laughs> you know like let's let's back up 
So some some people that's the way they see it, and that's the only yeah. way they can do it. God bless no, I get them. it. And, and I I think it's a battle of once again. I think I mean I think it's like preciousness and fear and all these things do kind of play a hand in that because you're not experimenting and, ch- and pushing you're kind of holding and grasping and that's mm. a, a kind of a different way of looking at yeah. it yeah um so writing that's so historically you get the the, the story that the, the 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 tale of the penciler who you know, took a took a crack at writing a comic book. You know, and right. okay, and they and they moved on. They became writers, or they write and draw their own stuff. The the story typically isn't the inker who moves up, moves right. on to become a writer. Um, how did you? I mean, you said you had an English. You took English in college, so like you you understand. Yeah. And looking back, I probably was more of a natural writer than I was an artist, but okay. I. That I, I I had no idea how you would show words to somebody and get work. I didn't know. Well, that's what Phil, so Phil said. The same thing. Phil said he was more like a, he was he was a natural writer. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I just couldn't fathom how I would get work that way. So I decided to go into inking. And about five years into my inking career, I went. Uh, I, I'm not always smart about my career, but I was smart enough to say. I don't want to be the 60 year old anchor who is just desperately hoping for some young editor to throw me a scrap, you know? Yeah, I, sure. I, I want to at some point start to own the things that I'm creating so that if they do well, I do well. Yeah. And it's great. I'm very thankful for green arrow. It's paid a lot of bills around here, reprints and all that. God bless it. But if they make a green arrow movie, it doesn't help me any. So I wanted you get a look that does this. So I wanted to I wanted to own things. I also was smart enough to see that I knew some old artists and they weren't in great shape. It's hard bending over a drafting table for eight hours a day, and my spine is. I mean, I'm not in great shape. My spine sucks. So at that point, I went. If I don't want to just depend on inking. Uh, I can see two choices, assuming I stay in comics. One is starting to learn how to pencil and moving that way. And the other is writing. And to me, writing seems easier. So again, I took the easy way out. <laughs> so, yeah, and I was always, I, I, I always could write a bit. Yeah. Um, so I just started pursuing that. And Mike Manley was, uh, we have been, I'm getting off on a tangent here. Forgive me. I love it. Go. We were really lucky to be able to attend this thing called ProCon. Peter David wrote into the Comics Buyer's Guide once, this is in the early 90s, and said, why don't we have conventions? We say we have conventions, but we don't really. We, What we have are we sit down and sign autographs. When plumbers have a convention, they right. learn how to do their craft better. They bond with their peers. They join a guild where they get maybe an insurance discount. Things like, we don't get, why don't we have that? So for two years, they put together a ProCon, which was before WonderCon out in Oakland. Okay. And the first year was remarkable. They got DC to uh, sponsor and some other people to sponsor. The first year you signed up and you actually had to pay to attend. I think I paid 300 bucks for my two days. My seminars included Joe Kubert, Dick Giordano, 
Will Eisner, Todd McFarlane, Steve Olaf, who at the time was like breaking in, breaking edge. Uh, he was coloring. Yep. Cutting edge is what the word I was using, uh, looking for. So, I mean, just session after session of me just filling it like, oh shit, <laughs> Will Eisner, like, oh, yeah. And just your mind exploding. And the one I didn't mention yet was Dave Sim, because Dave Sim really lit a fire under us about publishing our own stuff and owning our own stuff. Yeah. And we went home from that and Mike Manley said, well, screw it. Let's do let's start doing our own comics. And he put out an anthology called uh, Action Planet. Phil created a character. I created a character, some other guys. Mike created a character called Monster Man. And we just started making our own stuff. And that is where I started writing. Wow. And I liked it enough and I could tell, you know, it didn't suck. And then I read Alan Moore's From Hell a few years later and said, that's what I want to do is historical fiction. Gotcha. Um, were you that led to my first graphic novel, Union Station. And, and you were a reader of historical fiction at the time? Yeah, I always had been. I always yeah. loved biographies and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. The idea that you could do that kind of history story mm-hmm. and have it be so entertaining that the reader's like only dimly aware that they're being educated, I thought that's the coolest. <laughs> so well, it's, I don't know how far, you know, in the, in the spectrum you go. Like, are you like only like into the, like the on target stuff or are you like the alienist, you know, like, okay, we're going to put it into this time frame and, and tell a story. Um, my first two graphic novels were very, real world based, like real events. The first one's a union station massacre that happened in Kansas city. The second mm-hmm. one is Truman Capote's time in Kansas while he was writing in cold blood. So I took real events and threw in a fictional character or two to kind of uh, serve as a skeleton for, out the, you know, for to hang everything on. Um, so no, I've never gotten too fantastic with my right. that premise. Okay. And then the, the project that turned into the, the extraction movie I got because I was kind of Oni Press's um, realism writer. Okay. And so the Russo brothers wanted to do this real world crime story. And so Oni recommended me and that that's how that happened. Okay. I was probably, I probably really didn't help my career any. um, uh, I should have probably clung to historical fiction more and kept doing that, but I was worried. I don't want to just be the historical fiction guy. So I, Took yeah. off on some projects that never developed because they weren't right for me, whatever. There, you know, the thing is, it's amazing. Like with historical fiction, I mean, there's so it, there's there's a built-in audience for most all most of it. So, mm-hmm. like my buddy Jeff Jensen did the Kate Warner story, which is like one of the uh, fe- like the female detective in Chicago. Oh, like, cool. You know, you know, I don't like you know in 1910 or the late 1800s, you know, and uh, it, it's, it's freaking beautiful, you know, but it's yeah. this huge book that like, you know, he wrote and George Shaw uh, illustrated it and it's, it, but it's beautiful, you know? And I think like, we're all going to be the drawn into these. I mean, I don't know. They're, they're, they're fan They're fantastic. Any kind of like real, I mean, I like all stories, but it's like, but when you're like, well, this really happened. Like, yeah. like so like I'm, 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 I, I love Truman Capote. Like I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm also of the, the, I think the only conspiracy I hold on to is the fact that he, he wrote to kill a mockingbird. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, 
and it's mostly just because it's it's a fun divisive thing to state to say right. out loud. but um like he's fascinating and you know you know you know we don't have that type of brilliant brains floating around too often yeah. and you know so were you a Capote fan? Were you drawn to the, the 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 crime? Like, what was the thing that you said? Like, hey, this is a subject I want to go take a look at. I had the idea actually before Union Station, but I thought, well, that's dumb. Nobody nobody wants to read a book about a, a writer, so I, I thought the gangsters were a better idea. Yeah, which might have bit me in the ass because by the time we did do ours, like they were developing the Philip Seymour Hoffman movie at the same time, and I was like, what? Right. But what drew me to it was something very simple. I knew Truman Capote from seeing him on TV show, Dick Cavett or Tonight Show when I was a kid. Yeah. So I knew what kind of character he was. And then I read in Inkle Blood, probably a little too young, like junior high. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, and so I knew that then that odd little man from TV had gone out to Western Kansas and talked to people like my grandparents and somehow I'd gotten them to open up to him. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's odd. I can't imagine Truman Capote showing up to talk to my grandpa, who lived in the middle of Kansas, and that would go very well. And yet he did it. Yeah. So that was the the impetus was like, how, how did he do that? And then when I found out that part of how he did it was that he took Harper Lee with him, who was maybe better at connecting with mm -hmm. people like that. And I was like, well, that's ridiculous. So, yeah, that's obviously a story. Yeah. And then I had the idea. I, for me, that wasn't enough. I wanted something a little grander. So I just told you I didn't put fantastic things in, but I, I guess I, I felt like I shouldn't tell that story without representing the victims. Okay. But there's no story unless the victims are dead already. So I brought back Nancy Clutter as a ghost or maybe a figment of Truman's process. Yep. Hopefully it works either way so that the clutters were in the story as well. So that was the twist I added was that Nancy Clutter is also a character. Yeah. It, it, so what was your, I mean, what was your research process for that? Because I mean, these, these types of stories require accuracy. Yeah. I did less on this one. Reunion station. I, I found myself getting a little crazy as, as in trying to make a comic book perfect mm -hmm. can be a trap. I, I think when you're scared to write because it's your first big project, the research can become a trap. Very long. Yeah. I remember I found myself one day researching what time the sun rose on a certain day in 1933 because I wanted a character to get up at dawn. And I went and I was like, okay, what are we doing? Is I this really? Totally, I totally, totally understand what you're saying. I was oh like, is this God. helpful? So yeah. with the second one, I thought, well, let's not rely on the research so much. Mm -hmm. And hopefully the fact that there's a ghost in it will clue people in that it's maybe not hundred percent factual. Sure. And then I had the, the problem of, I was worried if I read In Cold Blood again, I'd read it twice, I think, by that point. I was worried if I'd read it again, I would end up retelling things that he already said. Yeah. And I wanted to avoid that. But I needed some Nancy Clutter information. So a very kind friend of mine read it for me with that in mind and gave me like a couple pages of notes about Nancy. So That's brilliant. So it kind of divorced me from the direct contact, but I got the facts I needed. Yeah. And then I read everything I could on Truman and what little there was about Harper. And then just tried to have them living in my head and then just dove into it as best I could. And so what, it, so I, 
what was it what was your writing process you know you know i mean obviously the the research wasn't in total and then you wrote i'm sure you were researching as you were writing at times but like what was your what was your process i mean you had to sort of i mean I guess you pitched this thing before you were sitting down and, and typing away yeah so, like you you had a like a one page framework idea of what you were shooting for to the publisher I did. I had a two page, three act structure, basic outline. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to think in terms of three acts. So first act, I think in that one, in Union Station, there actually, it actually says in the book, act one, act two, act three. Yeah. In Capote, those are invisible, but they, they're definitely represented in my mind. The first section is called Outsider. It's about him arriving in this town. And, and the second section is called crisis or something it's where he's like i don't think i can do this and then nancy shows up mm -hmm. and the third section was about him resolving his feelings about one of the killers who he cares for very much perry yeah and nancy on the other hand one of his victims and how to balance that um and how to do justice to both of them in a way when so so i did have that much structure in mind um by then i'd read the bios of Truman, I think, and it, maybe not all of them. I kept kind of informing myself about Truman. Yeah. But then once I'm actually writing, it's just, I think I, I try to put all that aside and just, just write the characters in the moment. Um, I always worry about theme. The theme of that book is that creating a great work of art can take a lot out of the artist. Mm. Um, so, and there are secondary themes that I try to touch on alienation and so on. But with every book, I want to say something. I always, people tell me their book ideas and I say, well, what are you trying to say? Yeah. What's the theme? And they go, well, the theme is um, alcoholism. Well, that's not a theme. You, a subject. It's not a theme unless you say something about it. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I never want the, I never want you to read a book and go, oh, theme is on every page. Hopefully you're just into the characters and their, their actions. Mm-hmm. But I want that theme to kind of inform the whole thing, you know? Yeah, and I think, I mean, I don't think necessarily a writer has to have this theme, you know, sort of established on a post-it note on their, on their monitor yeah. as a writing. I think often a story or a character will drive the, you know, what's happening on the page. And then we, as the writer, go back in and look at this thing saying, okay, this is what I'm trying to say. Like, yeah. here's, here's the thing. And then you can tease these things you know higher or lower yeah. throughout the, the main and I, I do i think there are great writers who their only goal is to just propel the hell out of the thing and just just turn the damn page and you know yeah. a reacher book does a reacher book have a theme i don't know but they're damn hard to put down right so yeah and that's just not what i i that's not what i'm good at i think right and i don't you know and also we're talking we're talking context here i mean i don't know if you if i don't i don't know examples of you know historical fiction that are you know page turners you yeah. know like i mean i think that they are the reason someone is picking something is because the subject the character are of a, of a relevance or an interest and then you have to juxtapose that with the time that the writer is writing it in right. that's where the theme comes out the theme comes in between that that juxtaposition between you, Andy, hand on keyboard versus subject, what happened, you know, right. 
60 years ago. And there's a, my favorite moment in that Capote and Candace book is when I get to reflect what I think Truman's theme was, whether he would have said this or not. I usually think most of my heroes would have been mean to me and call me an idiot, but so (laughs) he would probably disagree. Uh, But for me, what he, what he was trying to say was that there were two Americas in play that night. Yeah. There was a comfortable, accepted, normal side. And there was a downtrodden in self victimized kind of forgotten Mm -hmm. side. And when those two things clash at 3am in the morning, it's just a, it's a bad, nothing good can happen. No. And so at at the, at the climax of my book, Nancy Clutter says to Truman, who's feeling very guilty about everything by using everybody says Truman, as soon as those men pulled into our, those men pulled into our driveway, we were all dead. Yeah. Nothing could change that. And, that I just love that so much that I was able to connect to what I think Truman was telling us in a way that informs my story. That that makes me happy. Yeah, and I think that in a, in a lot. I think Nancy Nancy in this respect sort of performs the narrative voice for you. Yeah. So you're you're able to sort of have a bit of more of that omniscient voice, right? In in the, you know in throughout your story to give the reader a, your perspective versus right. just hear the events. And because without her, and I'm not disparaging the Philip Seymour Hoffman movie, or I love him. I don't love all the movie, but he's fantastic. Sure. But without without Nancy, it, it's a the story is all about the outsiders. Yeah. It's not about the where I live. It's not about Kansans. Um, yeah. It becomes about these others um, coming into kind of. Um, live through our eyes, you know? Yeah. So how, like, how is your process as a writer? Well, I mean, let's, let's do both. Okay. How is your process as an inker and your process as a writer changed from your, your early works to how you approach it now? Um, early in my inking career, I, I was capable of all the angst that I'm now able to display in my writing career. Um, uh, every page wasn't good enough and I'd have crises and I'd tell my wife, Oh, it's over all that. Uh-huh. After a decade of making a living at it, you kind of get like, okay, I think I know how to do this job now. Yeah. Which is part of why I think it's important to move on to something else. Not that you have to leave inking behind, but I never wanted to settle into a place where I was just comfortable and went to work every day and went, okay, I'm making the lines. Sure. Punching in and punching out. Yeah, I don't, I don't want that. So inking was harder on my body, but it became easier on my mind. It became, okay, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm okay. Yeah. Um, still challenges, but it was okay. Writing is much easier on my body, and <laughs> I love it because you can solve a writing problem on the golf course. Yeah. Instead of sitting at that damn table. Yep. But it is much more emotionally draining and and demanding, and my poor wife has to deal with all this angst. Um, <laughs> we're talking about Capote in Kansas. There's a moment at a key scene where I labored over the scene for like three hours, and then I came up to the kitchen and I said, "It's too bad. It was a good idea for a book. 
<laughs> and now everybody's just going to laugh at me and say that I blew it. And, and she just goes, she just, at this point she goes, yeah, I remember, do you remember when you said this about the last book? And I said, yeah. And, and you're pretty proud of that one now. Like, yeah, I guess so. So, so, so my, my lovely wife had to put up with all this. Um, anyway, I love writing. Yeah. And it's very rewarding, but it's also mentally challenging. It's just a constant challenge. And I always feel like, I'm not a, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm surely it's easier for Kurt Biziak or whoever it must Maybe. be, but it's probably not. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's, I've done a lot of different stuff. You know, I've, 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 you know, draw written and draw comic books. I've, I've, I've been a brand manager. I've been a graphic designer and art director for all these big name companies and whatever, whatever. Nothing is more intellectually challenging and stimulating than writing. It yeah. is it, it, there. There's if, if you said, hey, you don't have to worry about food and shelter. And you get to go for eight hours a day, do something. What are you going to do? Like, it's going to be writing yeah. every single time. Like, I, there, there's nothing I would rather be doing with my time except yeah. for having this lovely conversation with you. <laughs> um, it, but it, it is that magic of being engaged with something that is really transporting and transformative as you do it and and it's not this it's funny that you said we talked about preciousness it's not about the preciousness of 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 getting that draft out because whatever it's a big mistake that's what the whole first draft is it's the it's the process of taking that and turning it into the story you know the the meaningful piece of work for whatever level you're trying to make, um, and that's where that love and that challenge comes in. Because yeah. if you know you're not you're not knocking it out of the park the first time, never. And I, I still struggle with that. I, I struggle to let the first draft go. Yeah, and and just keep making work. It's again make this version as best you can, and then try harder the next time. You know, it's right. hard. It's hard to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it, it is really rewarding. And you know, they, there is a magic about applying a pencil to a page and making a drawing out of nothing. Mm-hmm. It's at least as magical to just put down words everybody knows in an order in such a way that it can actually move somebody. That's it's a remarkable thing to to do when you I, Yeah, I I love music. I I love playing my guitar. I love singing songs, but I like playing other people's songs and singing other people's songs. I don't have it in my mind of going like, I want to write my own music. Like I don't, it's, it's not fair, but what you just said is so true. Like to be able to put something on, on a page that people can go through because the engagement of that versus a drawing is that someone looks at a drawing and goes, wow, that's great. You, they may, they may go, wow, that's amazing. You might get, you might get that. You might get Adam Hughes giving a, giving a thumbs up. Like that, there you go. You, you reach the you reach the apex. Adam Hughes thinks it's good, um, but to get someone to spend the time with the words that you have arranged on a on a blank piece of pay, paper, that's a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. And then, and the collaborative process that your your involvement with another, you know, you know, two three other people, yeah, to create to create an entitled entire piece. And and these days, after extraction, I, I'm I'm kind of chasing Hollywood money now. I'm working on screenplays and TV stuff, and and that is a 
it's a more isolated experience. It's also in the grand scheme a more collaborative part. Like the number of people involved in extraction by the time it was done is insane. Uh -huh. But there is, like we said, putting words down and you move somebody is a powerful drug. Um, getting paid to write a movie like Extraction is great. Almost as good is the fact that an idea I came up with in a room at the Russo brothers 10 years ago mm -hmm. was spewed out to a quarter of a billion people. Right. But in the first month of it airing and so yeah. that that's like, wow, that is a powerful thing to think about. And, and, and most of the ideas are, you know, they're not going to change the world, but there's some heartfelt things in there that I'm really proud of that people were exposed to in India and in, you know, all over, just, it, that's an amazing feeling. Well, I, that, so, I mean, look, I, okay, listen, you know, you, you've made comic books and you've made some comic books that have had a lot, a lot of, you know, a lot of attention, you know, people mm -hmm. said like, Oh, this is one of my favorite runs of green arrow or, or yeah. whatever the thing is. I mean, you've worked on Superman. I mean, there's not a bigger character in comic books. Um, sorry, Batman. Um, <laughs> it, but the thing is, is like, the scale is so different. Yeah. Like, you know, almost your entire work of comic books all added up doesn't meet up with that one thing. Yeah. And yeah. now the number of people involved in both of those projects, the scale is completely different, you know, and, and, and the price per, price per entry is much higher too. But like, how do you like frame that in your head? Because I mean, like the numbers are, you know, jk rowling you know like yeah. kind of numbers when it comes to a written piece of work um how do you hand like how do you handle that like in your own sort of like like well i'm the guy who wrote this like i mean you, can't, yeah. like, you have to be a little like it's cool. it is crazy and i allow myself to kind of soak in that for a while like okay. when my producers call me like a month after it aired they said we're are we estimating a quarter of a quarter of a billion people have seen it now <laughs> and you're like, and part of that was COVID, and we came out at the right time when everybody was yeah. trapped in their house, and, you know. For sure. Um, but yeah, that is really powerful, and that can go to your head. But I also know that I've had probably three or four projects in Hollywood that have been really close and just vanished like that. Yeah. Um, the odds of getting anything in production are really stacked against you. So it is way more of playing a lottery and the idea of putting in a lot of effort and it comes to nothing is pretty, that's rough. Mm -hmm. um, so the reward better be great yeah. because the odds of, you know, I could get hired to make a comic and it'll probably be a decent one. It probably won't be as big as extraction. It, it has almost no chance of being as big as extraction, but the odds that it's just going to turn into nothing are, that's not a possibility. At least I'm going to put it out there and I'm going to get paid. This yeah. is more like playing the lottery. Like, well, and so after it came out, I said to myself, I'm going to chase this money for five years or so because I okay. owe it to myself. I don't want to throw that opportunity away, but I'm, I'm prepared for the fact that nothing may happen. I don't know. Yeah. I, I just, you know, you ain't going to win the lottery if you don't buy a ticket. So, well, I mean, that's take a shot. Yeah, and I think, and I think what we have to do at times is we do have to bet on ourselves. Yeah, I say that a lot. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah because I think like, 
there's a, you know, there's a, like, so like I, I made the, the, the foolish and bold, you know, effort to say, I'm going to become a novelist. Like, yeah, that's a smart move. Um, and, but like, I looked back and I said, like, listen, I, my comic book work, you know, touched hundreds of thousands of people and the design work I've done has touched way more people. And like, and, and the numbers are, you know, financial numbers are so much higher. And I'm like, like, I know how to make things that people like, like, so why not just trust myself to make the thing that I like and put it out there. Right. And I, I feel like, like that's a hard thing to do at any age. It's easier when you're young because you have so much less invested, but you also don't have the experience of saying, of knowing what to trust and what not to trust. Um, yeah. But I think you always have to do it. And like, there's a, a point, like you said, you're like, well, I have no plan B. I'm just going to do this. Right. And, uh, you know, and thankfully you've had a bit of a good payday. So you can kind of say, all right, I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to make the concerted effort here. But so, it's, it's a really important lesson. You not that I'm not trying to paint myself as a model for how to live your career in comics, whatever, but I kept saying, I want things with my name on it. I want, I want to create things that, I'm investing in. Mm-hmm. So when I was steadily employed as an inker, I used that to pay the bills every month and then start writing graphic novels on the side. Yeah. I was always trying to find a way to bet on my own potential. Yeah. Um, and you have to, I mean, that's, it's a hard, it's hard. It's easier to just say, DC, give me a check every month and I'm just going to sit here and be fine. I'm cool. Right. But the thing is, is there's always going to be newer, younger people coming into yes. the business. So not, they're not they're not stopping. You know, no one's not saying I want to get into this business next year. It, there's always going to be new people. And your your group of editors that you you came in with and who you worked with for years, they move up the ranks and they move out. Yeah. So ultimately, they all go away. And or they're in a position where they can't hire you anymore. They're like, right. well, I'm I'm the group editor now, or I'm the, the the boss of the editors, or I work in the publishing side. Yep. So you lose you lose your sort of your cheerleading squad, and it's real tough because no longer you know is the is your your buddy Phil who you got in as a penciler with. He's not like grinding it out the same way he was. Maybe he's doing yeah. different things, and now I don't have that te- tag team anymore. So right. I. Part of why I'm a, I'm a decent writer is my brain is really good at spinning out the worst possible scenarios. <laughs> and I often applied that to my own career. And I was like, I don't want to be that guy that I see over in the corner of the convention who hasn't worked in eight years. And he's like, oh, this, they screwed me over the bastard. I don't, man, I didn't. <laughs> No, I had my bets against that, you know. And listen, man, you get screwed over day one in the business. I mean, that's yeah. just the nature of the business, and it's not personal. It's just what happens. Right. So, you know, you know, bet on, like you said, bet on yourself. Be the person who is making yeah. the thing for yourself, because no one's going to say, "Hey, Andy, we've got we've got a slot for you to come up with your own thing, and you're going to own this." go for it. Like that's not ever going to happen. Like they, right. like the only time that happens is if you've done that a bunch of times and some people are like, we're not now you bet on yourself, but we're going to bet on you because now we need, we want some of that magic that you have. Right. But you have to be Jeff Lemire for five years before that. For sure. Happens, right? right. He did. Yeah. He didn't walk in the door and say, this is how it's going to be. Like he, he had to, he had to do his dues and uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a very cool thing. So 
how do you approach it now? I mean, like you're not like, I mean, you like now you said you're out, you're putting out ideas now. I guess you're generating, are you iterating ideas and getting them out there to, you know, to manage or agent or manager? I'm trying to. So um, I don't have an agent. I have producers I'm attached to that were okay. involved at Oni back in the day. And since then, Oni and my producers have had a divorce and I, uh, the producers got me in the, in the deal. So okay. <laughs> I connected to a producer named Eric Gitter and a company called Closing on Mondays. And they, they are, they're the guys who got extraction made and, cool. and they've been good for me. And so my goal now is to been to write a couple, cause I, I told them after extraction, I think it's time for me to get an, a Hollywood agent. And Eric said, you're right, but you need a screenplay. Um, it's not enough to get it to just say, look at all the cool comics I wrote. And right. I get it. So I took a while. I figured out my first screenplay wrote that. And they said, good. Now write another one that's more commercial and castable. And so I'm working on that. And then I'm working on a TV pitch with some other writers and just trying to build that way. And that's great. So next step is agent. And then, you know, maybe just try to just try to maybe maybe they hire me to write something else. Maybe one of my things moves ahead. I don't know. Yep. Just trying to feel my way through, which is uh, tricky from Kansas, but it's possible. I think that's another way. I hate to, I hate to act like COVID has, has any silver linings, but I think it's easier to work remote now in any field yep. because people have just oh Zoom works. Yeah, like I have a buddy who works on a writer's room on a pretty popular show. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure they'll ever have a room again where they meet in person every day. Wow. Um, Cause they can just zoom it. I love that idea because one of my dreams, not that I'm ever chasing this dream, but it's a dream that I would love to ha have come true is to work in a writer's room. I just, I, I love the idea. I love the idea of breaking stories with people and, you know, cause you do it already with your friends. Like why not do it? Right. Why not do I it? I like it. I like the idea. Like when I think about, I'm in a room with Vince Gilligan and he's throwing ideas. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But then I talked to my buddy who's on a show. <laughs> he says they have 14 writers. I'm like, oh my God, how does anything happen? Oh shit. How can you hear anything? I know. I can't imagine. And I, I feel like I'd be in the guy in the corner, hardly ever speaking, just writing. And then they, they decide I was worthless. Yeah. <laughs> your screen, they were just, eventually your screen just says it's black with the word Andy on it. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's 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 an interesting thing. Yeah. So I I'm not doing much comics. Uh, Phil, like Phil and I just did a Kevin Smith job. Yep. So okay. Kevin uh, asked for us to come back for this uh, Tales of the Quick Stop thing, and so I suggest to that. So I've retired from Ingen like five times, and it never seems to stick. So I'm not saying no to comics forever, but I'm I'm concentrating on other stuff for the moment. It's your Michael Corleone. That's it. Yeah, that's right. your move. You, you'll you'll get pulled back in. It yeah. always happens. Um, that's cool. Well, I, it's exciting. I'm glad. I'm I, I I envision your your writing days are very interesting now because you're sort of like generating and kind of in a new territory, which might be kind of exciting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's challenging. It's good. I, hopefully, it'll stave off the uh, early onset dementia. I'm I'm constantly learning new things. So. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that one up. Great. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a, it's, it's a, yeah, you got to do everything you can. You got to yeah. keep your brain as loose and right. coming up with and learning and doing all that stuff to keep the brain going. Um, and again, I'm no model, but I think it's good for anybody to keep in mind. Yeah. 
you don't want to get to a place where you're just comfortable and ride that out for the next 30 years. That's not it. No, there's no, there's no interest in that. You want to challenge yourself. Yeah. So briefly, just what is your, what does your workday look like for you? Um, so I've decided, I, I hate to admit this, but I may as well, I've said it in enough places now. Okay. I actually write when I'm having an on day for four hours a day. Okay. No, More than that, I can't. I just can't. I'm the same and way. People dude. go, oh my God, you only work four hours a day. Yeah. But yeah, if you, you go to an office, how many hours are you actually working? You're writing for four hours a day. You're yeah. not, you're working the other times too. Um, and at this stage in my process, I'm starting a new screenplay. And so at this, this is probably the most painful because you don't sit down and go at the end of the day, three pages. Woo. Right. It's, it's this. Um, yeah. It's just yep. freaking just page after page of writing questions and then hopefully some answers every now and mm-hmm. then. Do you and use it, a, a I have that painful stage? I call it, um, there's a vague beauty to a project where you've got, I've got it in one page form. It's pretty right. tight as a one pager, but that means a lot of elements of it are vague. Mm-hmm. When you have to turn those into concrete, they just turn into shit for like a while. <laughs> and, and you have to drag it from vague perfection to concrete okay yeah and then start hammering into concrete good and that's yeah. a it's a painful process yeah but that's that's the revision process man the revision yes. process is that's where the work comes in you know coming up with the idea and being a darling in that respect that's drafting and then it's like then you have to really work roll up your sleeves and come up with like why does this why does this what needs to happen to make this work Right. Do you whiteboard? Do you are you post-it notes? Are you disorganized? Uh, probably. I'm just thinking about that the other day. I have a whiteboard and post-its that I pull out um, on most projects, and I think I'm almost there. Okay. And uh, I that's one of the things I had to learn about a screenplay was there a standard kind of midpoint reversal, that kind of stuff that you don't have to adhere to 100, percent but there are industry standards that people kind of want to see. Their expectations. Yeah. So yeah, I'm almost there. Well, I'll start pinning up scene signposts and okay. so on. It's tough. You want to balance that. You want the characters to live and drive the story and all that, but you also want to hit these signposts. So there's a, it gets a little delicate. Um, yeah. The beat, the beats are kind of necessary as far as, yeah. especially when somebody's reading these things, they kind of need that, that really like, that Jack Reacher page turning thing, yeah. like that's really what the that they're kind of looking for when it comes to any kind of like big, you know, thing that yeah. they want. To, they want to know: Are we turning these pages? Because I want we want people to not stop watching it on TV or right. leave the theater. Like they want to keep people engaged. Yeah. Um, what are you writing in? I see you do notebooking. I, I love that. Yeah, and then. Um... From this, it will move to, I decided not to do final draft. Okay. Um, I got a software called Fade In, which is very similar. Okay, very cool. Um, never heard I of subscribed it. to that one, and I've had to learn. It just helps you keep it in the right, you know, it does the spacing and all that for okay. you. Yeah, yeah, sure. But that's a whole language I had to learn, um, you know, um, when to lay out the establishing shot, when to tell it it's a new shot, new scene, and it's it's a whole different shorthand you have to learn. And well, my first screenplay was way too wordy because <laughs> that doesn't matter in a comic book script. No, um, you can tell the artist for a couple paragraphs. So I sure. see, you know, 
they want this ruthless um, Hollywood efficiency in a screenplay. So I, I had to go through and like rip out a third of my words in my first screenplay. Yeah, that sounds yeah okay. That's cool. Yeah, it's um, you know, it, but it, I mean, it's not too different than what you were talking about looking at original artwork. You know, you you gleaned a lot of how what to make your work professional in your presentation by looking at the artwork. So like for you to look at other screenplays, you're not looking at the font and you're not looking at the the Xerox reproduction, but what you're looking at is how does this format, how are they structuring this? How are they leading? Where are they putting the whatever in here? And then you're, so you can get those elements that you can make you, because if it looks like a screenplay, you're part of the way there. Right, right. Well, man, I, I, it's exciting. I, I get really excited when people do the new thing. Right. Because it's not easy. It's really hard to do the new thing. It is. And it, and I think it's encouraging for me. I think it's encouraging for everybody who in their heart is like, I really want to try something. Yeah. And you know, you don't have to say like, I only want to get in comics and draw comics or ink comics or color comics or write comics. You can do other stuff too. Like the yeah. world doesn't stop at just one thing. And uh, it's important to give yourself credit to think that you deserve to try new things. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and pushing yourself is not always easy, but it's a, you, you're, it's a reward. You know, you deserve to have that thrill of, of new success. And to that end, I push myself in that way, but Jesus, finding the best partner that you can in life is all, because I think I've been married 32 years. Okay. I've never once heard a, are you sure this is right for you? Are you sure? You know, wow. just constant freaking support. That's the best tool in the it world. Is. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I owe so much to my wife in that respect as well. I mean, she's my biggest cheerleader in, 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 you know, in my writing. So, and I've got a lot of great cheerleaders, but she, she's the one who's there, you know, with, with the cups of water as I go running by, you know, (laughs) grabbing them and on I go. And again, I never want anybody to judge anybody who makes it on their way alone and they're perfectly happy. I just, the way I'm built, man, I need that support. And it's a great thing to have. It, it, It feels nice to not feel alone for me. (laughs) I get it. I get it. So how can any, anybody who wants to keep tabs on you, keep tabs on you? That's a tricky question these days, right? I know. It's a bit low. It's a bit loaded. I, I put one little post on Twitter last night about like, you know, it would be nice if we could treat Twitter like the rest of the world and be okay. Like if other people don't agree with us, you know, and like, maybe we can move on and figure it out ourselves. And like, it was just, it opened up this big floodgate of really interesting discussion yeah. with some really great people. And, and it, the nice thing is it resolved really well. It didn't Good. explode, yeah. but it definitely uh, is a, is a minefield out there. Well, I took a t- few steps back from Twitter, but I'm, I'm trying to just post positive stuff there every now mm-hmm. and then. Um, like Jerry Ordway's birthday, that's a big national event. I think we should <laughs> So, so. So I am on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Uh, I don't really open up Facebook to the public. Um, yeah, same here. And, and I'm on the new Hive thingy. I don't know if that'll last or not. But the cool thing about my unique name, which is kind of a pain in the ass, is that you can find me easily if you just spell Andy with an E. You'll find me wherever you yeah. go if I'm there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll put that. It'll be in the doobly-doo. 
so if when people want to track you down well, on, the, on the whatever's I'll, I'll put it in there but um good. and this was great man i really appreciate the time and oh, i had a blast thank you man yeah yeah I, I, and uh and, and thanks for just sharing so much stuff because i think that like rich discussion is is how we all kind of grow yeah together and yeah. uh i'm super happy to have shared this time with you and um i look forward to hearing what ha- what happens and when it happens next for you because it's it's pretty exciting um, thank you yeah, and yeah. people i guess i should mention please watch for extraction too it should be out early next year on Netflix. that's pretty cool that's big you get you got a franchise baby yeah right who knew? mr, mr. franchise what a world I know. Who knew? Thor right? is running around killing people, and, and it's. I had something to do with it. It's amazing. I think that's a win. That's a win. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, until next time, and uh, see you around. Take care, brother. Hold on a second. There we go. <laughs>